the meaninglessness of life without God, one of Craig's chapters in Reasonable Faith. Um, it's part of, uh, for Craig, dealing with the, the doctrine of man, the human predicament, um, what is the significance of human life if this is indeed a, 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 a non-theistic universe, or we view it in a post-theistic kind of worldview context. Uh, it's an apologetic for Christianity, particularly associated with Francis Schaeffer, who we've, we've mentioned earlier. Um, but you can see prefigurations of it uh, in the Old Testament, um, in the book of Ecclesiastes, for example, and in the writings of um, Blaise Pascal, French philosopher and mathematicians. Um, Craig calls it existential apologetics because uh, much of its analysis of the human predicament is drawn from the insights of, of 20th century atheistic existentialism. Uh, people like uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, uh, Kafka, and so on. Um, for Craig, he thinks this apologetic isn't really concerned with giving evidential arguments with warrant for Christian beliefs. It's more concerned to highlight the significance of the difference that having Christian beliefs or not having them has on how you experience life, how you live life, how you think about uh, being in the world. If you can show that a godless universe is one without meaning or purpose, um, then we can make uh, the good wish that theism were true, as Pascal put it, motivating people to search for the truth about God, giving them a kind of hunger that, well, wouldn't it be great if there were, were a God, will motivate them to look into whether or not it's reasonable to believe that there is a God. It sort of opens up a playing field uh, for the discussion for Craig. Um, this is a quote from Pascal and his pensées, his thoughts. He says, "Man, men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid it might be true. To cure this, we have to begin by showing that religion is not contrary to reason. It should be made lovable, should, should make the good wish it were true, then show them that it is indeed true. So he's talking about connecting the gospel, in a sense, into the, the sort of the hungers of the human heart for the God who designed them for a relationship with him, as we would see it from our perspective. Um, Augustine's famous phrase in his Confessions, where he says that the heart is restless, uh, our heart is restless, and it is restless until it finds its rest in thee, O Lord. Um, Pascal talked uh, about the sort of God-shaped vacuum in the human heart that can only be filled by a relationship with God. Um, so trying to bring out the implications of there not being a God in order to motivate people to, to seek after God. Um, Francis Schaeffer, again. Um, modern man, says Schaeffer, resides in a two-story universe. He has this little diagram of a two-story house in some of, one of his books. In the lower stories, the, the finite world, the material world without God, and here life is absurd. In the upper story are meaning, value, and purpose. Now, modern man lives in the lower story because he believes there's no God, but he cannot live happily in such an absurd world. Therefore, he continually makes leaps of faith, unjustified, blind faith, that is, leaps of faith into the upper story to affirm meaning, value, and purpose, even though he has no right to, since he does not believe in God. 
something's very clear if you look at Richard Dawkins' work. We had a quote earlier from Dawkins showing how he very explicitly says, you know, there are facts on the one hand and then there are values. Values aren't facts. We can disagree without actually contradicting each other. Indeed, categories of true and good and evil really don't mean anything, says Dawkins. Um, Elsewhere in one of his books, he says there, there is at heart no no purpose, no design. That means no God behind the universe. Uh, no 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 good, no evil, nothing but pitiless indifference. The pitiless indifference of nature. That's all there is. So he says that kind of thing on the one hand, living in the lower story of, of modernism. But then time and time and again, he'll say things like, um, religion is evil. Faith is a bad thing because it means not living up to your intellectual responsibilities. Um, uh, paedophilia is a, is an evil thing. You know, no, I, I agree with him. Paedophilia is an evil thing. Uh, we should, we did ought to live up to our intellectual responsibilities and so on. I don't think all religion is evil. I think some is, some isn't. But there he's using this moral language suddenly. Now if he's consistent he's on the one hand said you know moral language isn't really telling us anything that's true he, he'd say when I, when I say religion is evil or faith is wrong or whatever I'm not really making truth claims I'm just kind of spouting off um, but he doesn't seem that he seems to sort of vacillate and jump between thinking on the one hand that there's no such thing as good and evil and then on the other hand wanting to condemn things in, in moral terms and to praise other things in moral terms sort of bouncing boing boing between the lower story and the upper story depending on how it kind of suits the moment for him without seeming to recognise that these two stories don't really fit together that he's uh, communicating uh, so Craig says it's impossible to, to live consistently and happily within a, a naturalistic worldview. If you live consistently, he'll not be happy. If one lives happily, it's only because he's not consistent with that worldview. That's how he puts it. Um, I'll go through this because see if she comes back in a moment. Um, so Nick Pollard, he's uh, my boss at Demaris Trust, actually author. This is from a book of his called Evangelism, made slightly less difficult. Great title. Um, he talks, develops uh, Schaefer's image of uh, people are living in this inconsistent house um, and we need to gently and lovingly help them to take, take the roof off of this shelter of the worldview that they're living in that's not a Christian worldview so that the truth of reality can kind of impinge upon them first we have to make them dissatisfied with their worldview and one way of doing that is to try and point out this inconsistency um, that Craig diagnoses at the heart of uh, a sort of naturalistic, modernistic view of things that I think you can see illustrated in, in Dawkins jumping between denying value and affirming value and so on. Uh, and uh, Pollard uh, talks about the um, process of positive deconstruction. Um, positive in order to replace it with something better but deconstructing because we're, we're concentrating on the, inc the internal inconsistency of a non-Christian way of viewing things in order to open up the ground for a, a more positive argument for uh, a Christian view of things.
the aim is to awaken a heart response that says, I'm not so sure what I believe is right after all. I want to find out more, more about Jesus, if that can offer a consistency to life that the non-Christian view can't. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche has quoted him before, is very useful here. This is a parable of the madman. Do you, do you know this? The parable of the madman from Also Spake Zarathustra. Have you heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God? Where is God? He cried, I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Uh, Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Where is it moving? Whither is it moving now? Where are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? Backwards? Sideways? Forward? In all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as though for an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually drawing in and closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's too decomposed. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? Of course, tying in with his famous phrase, God is dead. But for Nietzsche, the logical implication of saying that God is dead is, is that we've, we've got rid of any um, reference point for talking about a real objective, good and evil, right and wrong, true and false, even is there any up and down there's no reference point anymore value has gone out the window meaning has gone out the window purpose has gone out the window Um, and so on it's very powerfully put um, sort of parable illustration of a worldview without God followed through consistently Um, there are two aspects to nihilism. If, you, if this is a subject that particularly grabs you, it's one that particularly grabs me. And I wrote a book on it a few years ago called I Wish I Could Believe in Meaning, A Response to Nihilism. Um, it's sort of out of print now, but you can still find copies secondhand around the place on the internet and so on. Uh, two aspects to nihilism. The first is the idea that life has no objective meaning... I think that's to do with no objective values, no, no objective goodness, no objective beauty, and so on. And the second is that life has no objective intrinsic purpose. It's not goal-directed or teleological. We, we often talk, in English at least, about the, the meaning and purpose of life. And I think those, those are connected but actually separate topics. In terms of God and purpose... The question here is, can there be an an objective purpose, an intrinsic purpose for life without there being a purposer of life? 
can there be a purpose without a proposer? Um, if we ask, what is the purpose of a gravestone? To continue the cheery mood here from, from Nietzsche. Well, we clearly, we could give a, a good, clear answer to the, the purpose of a gravestone. If I ask, what's the purpose of a pile of rubbish that just formed by chance? Do a pile of leaves and twigs and beer cans and things that just kind of blown there by the wind into the corner. What's the purpose of the pile of rubbish? Look at me as if I'm a bit weird. Must be a philosopher. That's a nonsense question. We can ask what's the purpose of the gravestone. It has one. It was created for a certain reason, for a certain goal. But the pile of rubbish just come about by chance. It doesn't have an intrinsic purpose. Sure, you know, I could choose to use it for one thing and you could choose to use it for another and we could have a squabble about what we're going to use it for. Um, but, but there's no fact of the matter about what we, you know, are we using it in line with its given purpose or not? Um, we can differ, but it's, is there a disagreement if, you know, I want to use it to sleep on and you want to use it to make a bonfire? <laughs> Um, there seems to be this connection between there being a proposer who has a, a, an end in mind for something in, in its creation and it having a given an intrinsic and objective purpose. So uh, Anthony Flew in his atheistic days uh, said objects acquire whatever purpose they may have from people. Kai Nielsen, atheist, says if there is no God, there is no purpose to life. You weren't made for a purpose. So atheists... Lots of atheists will agree with this. Um, because as G.K. Chesterton, famous uh, English writer, influence on C.S. Lewis, said, This world of ours has some purpose. And if there is a purpose, there is a person. There is a proposer behind things. So not only, I think, can you, you get agreement from the atheist and you can bring out this implication that if there is no creator then life has no objective purpose. There is no intrinsic purpose to our existence. Atheists agree with that. But we can also then go on to say, if your intuition, if your experience is that it seems to you that life does have a purpose, that there, there is a purpose for life, then the logical implication of that is that you should believe that there's a purposer of our existence, that there is a God. So you can mine an argument out of uh, looking at the issue of purpose, um, as well as uh, using it as a critique. Uh, there's actually a positive argument to be drawn out of it, I think, uh, in contradistinction to the way that Craig uses it. Uh, and then, of course, the moral argument is the one to look at in terms of the, the issue of the value of life. And you can move into, as well as arguments about beauty, given the objectivity of beauty, but the, the moral argument would kind of underlie that uh, anyway. And we've already um, looked in a previous session at the, the moral argument. I can look in a little bit more detail at some, one of the premises there, because this, I think, explains it quite nicely. Um, why believe, for example, that if God doesn't exist, then objective moral values don't exist? Why believe that? You can give arguments for that. Um, like this, you say, if, if the necessary precondition of something doesn't exist, then that something can't exist. There are good reasons to think that God's existence is a necessary precondition of there being objective moral values. And you see what follows from that. Because by definition, by nature, as, as objective facts, if they are that, moral values are independent of human beliefs, 
feelings, cultures, decisions, and so on. That is, objective moral values would be things that transcended us. Me, you, us. But also, objective moral value is, is prescriptive. It kind of takes the, the form of a, a, an instruction, a command. Do this, don't do that. And a prescription, a command, surely must ultimately derive from a mind, from a commander. Um, objective moral values are things that obligate us. I have an obligation to behave in a certain way, not to behave in a certain way. But obligations are not the sort of things that can be owed to an impersonal, a non-personal reality. I can only be obligated to a personal reality. If I have an obligation, therefore, there must be a personal reality behind that obligation. But if it's an objective moral obligation, that's one that transcends, by definition, individual human persons, groups of people, it transcends humanity then the source of that obligation, the personal source of that obligation, must likewise transcend humanity. A transcendent being to whom I'm morally obligated, beginning to sound uh, a lot like God. Um, Welsh philosopher Hugh Perry Owen puts it like this. On the one hand, objective moral claims transcend every human person. On the other hand, it's contradictory to assert that impersonal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills. I can't be obligated to um, the text on a computer screen, only to the person who wrote the text, or caused the computer to write that text. There must be an ultimate personal source behind that obligation or command. The only solution to this paradox, says Owen, is to suppose that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality of God. You see how positing God as the source of moral values solves this kind of dilemma, this paradox, that moral values by their nature have to be grounded in persons, but also if they're objective, they can't be grounded in us, in finite persons. Richard Dawkins will admit it's pretty hard to defend absolute morals on grounds other than religious ones. Um, We've had some of these quotes from atheists before. Uh, This is a fantastic quote, I think. I I, I hope as you're noticing, quite a lot of these arguments depend upon uncovering some intuition. Remember what I was saying earlier about arguments have to start from somewhere that you haven't really argued for you can at most perhaps try and, and bring out and strengthen people's recognition that that's where they, it is reasonable on the face of it to start from. Uh, and that's often where media, culture, film, stories and so on play a vital role in philosophy. Philosophers are always telling stories to one another in order to try and convince them of a certain viewpoint. And I think that particularly applies when, you, when, you, when you're getting down to something that seems to be such a, a basic kind of starting point for an argument that it's hard to see how you would actually give an argument for it because it's such a, a basic starting point. Um, this is a quote from a Christian writer called Teresa Vining um, about her experience as a student going through this sort of existential crisis of wrestling with nihilism. There's no meaning and purpose for life and so on. 
um, under the influence of some of her atheistic professors at university at the time. She says this, there, there is no God, I told myself. No real, no objective meaning, no, no basis for knowing what's right and wrong. It doesn't matter what we do or how we live. There is no foundation, no right and wrong, no hope. No. Something deep inside of me screamed. It could not be true. I couldn't believe that life was just a sick joke with humans and their capacity for love, appreciation of beauty and need for meaning as the pitiful punchline. That went against all my experience as a human being. There had to be something more. That night was the beginning of a new, no-holds-barred search for truth in my life because the one thing I did know after that night was that I couldn't believe that this life is all that there is. Something deep inside of me seemed to testify that somehow good is better than bad and love is better than hate and that must be something more than just a sum of atoms. I think that's a really powerful expression of a powerful and rationally warranted basic belief or intuition um, that this kind of argument uh, can trade in. Powerfully put. Uh, same point about rationality there. Uh, so, to, to finish, there are basically four ways of putting the relationship between God on the one hand and meaning and purpose in life on the other. Four ways of, of constructing this. Four arguments, but they d- d- devolve down into two basic worldview perspectives. The first answer would argue from atheism to the truth of nihilism. And of course, as a Christian, you might very well agree with this argument. Um, Premise one, life is objectively meaningless and purposeless unless God exists. Premise two, God does not exist. Well, you wouldn't agree with that as a Christian, but you might very well agree that that if God does not exist, therefore it would follow that conclusion, therefore life is objectively meaningless and purposeless. So arguing from atheism to the truth of nihilism. Of course, you might argue the other way, you might swap that around and argue from the idea that nihilism is true to the truth of atheism. It's an argument for atheism. It says, premise one, life is objectively meaningless and purposeless unless God exists. Premise two, life is objectively meaningless and purposeless. Why anyone would believe that? Interesting question. Conclusion, therefore God does not exist. But either way that you flip it, that's atheism going hand in hand with nihilism. The idea there are no objective values, only at best subjective ones. There's no objective, no intrinsic goal or purpose for life. Only subjective, extrinsic ones. You know, I have my purpose, you can have yours. We can disagree, um, differ about them, but there's, there's no real disagreement, no truth of the matter there. Expressed, for example, by William Provine, uh, atheist from America. He says, There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There's no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain that I'm going to be dead. That's the end for me. 
There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. Um, it's a fascinating clip of him saying something very similar to this. I think it's in the, um, the Expelled uh, documentary with Ben Stein. You'll probably find some clips on YouTube. And he's, he puts this very passionately. He passionately believes uh, in that view. Uh, indeed, it might be that he passionately believed in it because I, I think he had um, brain cancer some time ago and it reoccurred. He may have, have died, but um, don't put that rumour down to me. I haven't checked my facts on that one. Uh, there is a third answer in this area, which would be to argue from theism to meaning. This is kind of, the, in a sense, the way that Craig did it, uh, in order to say, look, what are the, the implications of an, a naturalistic worldview? Doesn't that actually make you uncomfortable? Look how Christian theism can give you a coherent al- alternative way of looking at things. Um, life is objectively meaningless and purposeless unless God exists. God does exist, therefore life is objectively meaningful and purposeful. Um, Christianity succeeds precisely where atheism breaks down in this existential sense, uh, says Craig. Uh, And he he mounts something a little bit like Pascal's wager. He says, uh, if the evidence for these two options were absolutely equal, a rational person ought to choose biblical Christianity. It seems for me positively irrational to prefer death, futility and destruction to life, meaningfulness and happiness. If you, haven't, if you had no rational basis in terms of evidence to make your mind up in terms of which work those two worldviews to choose, the only basis on which you could choose would be more to do with uh, intuitions about meaning, value, happiness, pragma- pragmatics and so on. And on those grounds, surely Christianity would, would, would win out. Uh, so for those who are not convinced by the evidence one way or the other, is it actually irrational to, to choose uh, the naturalistic worldview? It's an argument a bit like Pascal's wager that's aimed against the rationality of, of a particular kind of agnosticism. The fourth answer, of course, would be to, to argue from meaning to the truth of theism. You can... Uh, again, uh, Craig doesn't do this, but I think you can turn this into an argument for theism. Um, premise one, life is objectively meaningless and purposeless unless God exists. Premise two, life is objectively meaningful and purposeful. Conclusion, God exists. Uh, but again, either way, the basic answer is theism, objective values, objectively good normative intrinsic goals for life and so on Um, the meaning and purpose of life according to Jesus hear O Israel the Lord your God is one love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul all your mind all of your strength back to what we were talking about about true spirituality earlier on and love your neighbour as yourself there's no commandment no, no the purpose that we're meant to be fulfilling which is an objectively good purpose to be fulfilling um, that's what uh, Christ uh, offers us uh, a life that has objective meaning, value, goodness, beauty truth, purpose um, and is a big contrast to the logical implications of a worldview that got God uh, taken out of it